working through Romans on uh, Sunday nights. This is part five, the letter that changed the world. The subject tonight, can you see your notes all right? Are you, are you finding it a little dark? Okay, we'll turn it up. We, see, we live to please. Look at that. I thought when I looked out, when I saw people about this far, I thought, okay, there's some kind of an issue going on here. How a righteous God judges people who have never heard the gospel. Here's where we were two Sunday nights ago, and it's because we had a bit of a gap that I just want to do a bit of a quick, quick recap, but it'll be really quick. Um, here's some of the points Paul has made discussing God's general revelation. So there's general revelation and what theologians call special revelation, the scriptures, the revelation we have of, in Jesus Christ, general revelation in creation, in conscience, in those areas, revelation given to all people everywhere at all time. So here's some of the things that we studied, believe it or not, two Sunday nights ago on general revelation given to all mankind. First, that God has revealed himself to all people. We got that out of verses 19 and 20 of chapter 1. For what can be known about God, it's not everything, but what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. Where did this revelation come from? Well, in the things that have been made, so they, the they is everybody, religious, non-religious, they are without excuse. Okay, those words, without excuse, you need to give them their full weight. Paul means that these people... All people, everywhere, in all parts of the world, in all different cultures, in all different eras of history, they will not be able to declare God's judgment on them unfair or biased or poorly thought through. Second thing we saw is that all people are held accountable for what they do with the revelation they have received. And we got that out of verses 18, particularly, and 20. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven, the wrath of God. It's revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, here's what they do, they, they suppress the truth. There's that revelation, that general revelation of God, they can see it, they're without excuse. Why are they without excuse? Because when they see it, here's what they do with it, they suppress it. They suppress the truth. Verse 20, for his invisible attributes... Namely, his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So all people will be held accountable. The third thing we looked at. In rejecting God, mankind replaces him with idols. We got that out of 23. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. So, so what, what man does is he places his own ideas and his own 
the gods of his own making. It's not that they're all atheists. It's that they replace what is revealed about God with a God that is more suitable to their own desires and their own natures. And exchange the glory of the immortal God, 23, for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Thus, mankind's religions are not, as is usually assumed, his attempts to find God. That's an important truth. The religions of the world are not mankind's attempts to find God. They are mankind's attempts to avoid God. That's very different. To avoid the true God and yet still have a God. That's the idea there. And the last thing we looked at, D, God has given mankind over to judgment. I got that out of chapter 1, verses 24 to 28. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. This is the suppressing part we talked about. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. There's an exchange. Worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. I, I know what's best. Who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations. For those that are contrary to nature. That's not contrary to their nature. It's contrary to creation that God made. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Since they don't see fit to acknowledge God. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. This is not God's final judgment on sin. This is one of, not the only, one of his present forms of judgment on human wickedness. The final judgment, future judgment, is being stored up, the Bible says, for those who are unrepentant. That's in, by the way, Romans 2.5. But because of your hard and impenitent, that's non-repentant. In penitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself. On the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Now today, we're going to look at Romans chapter 2, hopefully, the first 11 verses. Let's read it. Or I'll read it. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. So there's a hypocrisy there. The, The things we get upset about when we see them in other people... We, we don't see them as being that ugly in ourselves. That's why I read somewhere, if you could see yourself the way other people see you, you'd never believe it. That's quite a quote. Verse 2, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do such things. So we know there's people doing bad things. Verse 3, do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself? 
Do you suppose that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? God's not striking people dead. Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself. On the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed, he will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. Isn't that interesting? Obey unrighteousness. It, it speaks of a dominion of sin, a rulership. But obey unrighteousness, there will, be, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Now, we're going to try and get through those verses tonight. They, they continue the theme of mankind's responsibility when faced with the universal revelation of God. The general revelation of God. Paul is still explaining his great thesis statement in 116. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he says. For it's, it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So the idea here is, everybody needs the gospel. Both religious Jews and pagan Gentiles, they stand equally in need of the power of God in Christ Jesus. So Paul is still explaining Mankind's universal sinfulness, his universal need for the gospel. Now, he began to prove that statement. He's been dealing with the Gentiles, those who don't have the law of God. Paul says they're still guilty. Even though they don't have Bibles, and even though they, they didn't have the gospel perhaps presented to them, they did have revelation from God. God's might, God's power, his greatness, they have been revealed in the created world around them. That was the focus of last week's, last week's study. And then there's another dimension to this universal, general revelation from God. He touched on it in 118, but now he's going he's gonna to wrap up with this universal, general revelation from God. And he's going to describe it as like conscience. General revelation of God's moral nature. All people, religious people, atheistic people, informed people, ignorant people, all people everywhere, they possess some kind of a sense of, of moral standard, rightness and wrongness. It's not the same in everybody. It can be badly marred, conscience can be seared and distorted. The Bible talks about that. But that's not Paul's point here. He's simply saying everyone has some kind of a concept. Atheist is sitting on the subway. Somebody comes up and is bigger, grabs him, throws him off the seat, and sits in his chair. It's not a big theological point, and everybody, including the person who just got thrown on the floor, everybody says, wait a minute, that's wrong. Where's that come from? That's what he's talking about here. That's what he's talking about here. 
this sense of rightness and wrongness, granted, it varies in different cultures, in different lands, in different eras. Paul's not dealing with all that. He simply wants to make the point that all people are born with some kind of moral compass, however fallen, however twisted, and all people violate it. That's the subject of this text tonight. So general revelation comes in the form of creation. And it comes in the form of inward moral oughtness. Point number one. Don't worry. There are three ways people stand condemned under God's general internal moral revelation. He's going to deal with it in 132 to chapter 2, verse 1. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, the wages of sin is death, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on one another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Those are pretty closely reasoned verses. He's still addressing the need of all people for the gospel, the power of God to salvation, but he's thinking still particularly of the Gentiles, the people who haven't been recipients of God's special revelation in the law, the Bible. There are people all over the world. Still, there are people who have little or no knowledge of salvation through Jesus Christ. They have never heard the gospel. They have never seen a Bible in their own language. What about them? It's a hard question, isn't it? What about them? Are they guilty before God? Or are they innocent before God? That's the issue Paul wants to talk about in these verses. They are guilty before God. But they're not guilty for rejecting the gospel. They've never received the gospel. They're guilty before God on a different basis. They're guilty before God because of their rejection of the general revelation of God in nature, in the created world. And they're guilty because of their um, inconsistency in, in living up to the moral witness that they have in their own conscience, in their own era, in their own culture. So in keeping with the theme of the preceding verses, Paul says all people have this innate sense, however twisted, of rightness, righteousness, the justice of God, a moral foundation that's, that's built right into them under the universe. He's talking about all people having an instinct Of what is proper and what isn't. The sins. The sins are listed in chapter 1. 22 to 31. And Paul says they're, they're just obviously off the mark of, of nature. Of the world around us. Of the way things are made and designed. They aren't religious sins in the strictest sense. You don't have to aspire to sainthood. To be aware of the wrongness of some of these things. God has planted certain decrees, 132. He's put them in the human heart, all human hearts. But there's a problem. There's a problem. 
Paul says people with no special revelation from God, they still violate the revelation they have. He says they betray themselves, all people betray themselves in three ways, okay? First, they do wicked things. Now, they don't all do the same wicked things. There's variety. And they don't just do wicked things. They don't do them all the time. But bit by bit, repeatedly, they don't live up to the standards even they profess. Everybody get that? That's an important point. So they do wicked things. They do things that they know are wicked. And they justify them. Two, they give approval to those who break these inward decrees. That's in the last part of 132. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now, everybody, put a period right there and and look at me because there's a really important point here. Please take a minute. Let, let, Let these sentences land on you with proper weight. God considers me judgeable for not abhorring the sinful deeds that I see around me. And the reason I stress that is because it's so countercultural. The, the proper response of our culture is not to abhor sins that you see in other people. I'm not talking about abhorring people. I'm talking about abhorring the sin that you see in people. Counter to that, the culture will teach you that really good people are tolerant of the moral choices of other people. Am I right? And what this verse says so clearly, it ought to smack us all in the face. It's got that much bluntness to it. That God holds me morally accountable for not abhorring the sin that I see around me and others. They not only do them, but but just as bad, 32, they give approval to those who practice them. And God hates that. The third thing these people do, here's another way that they're guilty. People who have never heard the gospel. These people judge others for doing the very things they themselves have done. Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. You shouldn't be like that. And at least sometimes I'm like that. See? Every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. So, so... There's three points there. And in this one, Paul sees the clearest proof that we all know these basic righteous decrees inwardly. We give ourselves away by the fact that we pronounce judgment on people, especially if they wrong us in some way, unjustly. We give ourselves away. We reveal that we do know there's right and wrong. We prove that we know that things are sinful. But at least sometimes we do those very same things and we justify them in ourselves. Okay, point number two. 
God's judgment on those without the complete special revelation of the gospel and the scriptures. Well, beyond our present understanding, I can't explain all this to you, but God's judgment is completely just. I get that in the first three verses of chapter 2. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. You know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who do those things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who do such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? So, so every time we make any kind of moral pronouncement on other people, we, we kind of fingerprint ourselves as deeply moral beings. And so whenever we break one of those same moral pronouncements ourselves, we show ourselves to be sinners. No Bible, no gospel, no preacher, no church. It comes from right in here. God's built it into us. We prove ourselves to be aware of sin. That's why Paul says we are two, one, inexcusable sinners, he says. You've heard it. We might as well look at it. Sometimes people wonder how fair it is of God to judge people who have never heard or even had a chance to hear of Jesus Christ. I get the heart behind the argument, but it misses Paul's point here entirely. These people aren't judged for rejecting Christ. Not one of them. Not one of them will be judged for rejecting Christ. These people are not judged for something they did not know. That's why Paul says the judgment they will receive is inexcusable. Because God will judge them for what they do know, not for what they don't know. So judgment in all sorts of varying degrees. I'm going to do a teaching on that sometime. I I don't believe the Bible teaches one uniform judgment. And I think that there's a lot of verses to back that up. Judgment in all sorts of degrees, which we can't fully understand right now, it will be meted out according to the revelation each person has received. That's why Paul says, Romans 2.2, God will judge rightly. That's the word he uses, rightly. Three, we're almost done. Paul tells us why many sinners fail to take God's judgment warnings seriously in 4 and 5 of chapter 2. Or, or do you presume, there's the word, presume, look at that verb. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? And the answer right here for all of us in this room is, yes, we do. Yes, we do. God forgive us for the way we do that. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath. I wish those words weren't in the Bible. Don't you? You you, you are storing up 
banking. You're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. One, one of the reasons people stall repentance is the apparent absence of God's judgment when other people commit the same sin. We all, he's dealing particularly with, with those who have never heard the gospel, but we all kind of see things continuing for the most part as they always have. <clears throat> Unless you get sick or have some disease, you'll, you'll live your 70, 80 years, you'll die. Your kids will live their 70, 80 years, they'll die. Your grandkids will live their 70, 80 years, they'll die. People who go to church, they live about the same as people who don't go to church. People who practice all sorts of uh, things that you and I would consider sinful, they make as much money as you make, they're as healthy as you are. Their kids go to university and get degrees. And it just rolls along, see? just rolls along. Sinners get by their whole lives, prospering in their wickedness. David wrestled with it, Psalm 73. The blessedness of the wicked. Peter cautioned about the same thing, 2 Peter 3, 3 and 4. He, he writes to us now, and he says, this, this is something you're going to have to come to terms with in your walk of faith. You're going to have to be able to explain this. You're going to be able to, have to be able to cope with this. It takes faith. He says, knowing that first of all, scoffers will come in the last days. Scoffing, following their own sinful desires. And here's what they're going to say. Where's the promise of his coming? What are you talking about? Ever since the fathers fell asleep. Go back as far as you want. All things are continuing as they were. So, so the consistency and regularity of life and the way God continually shows his patience, it makes them mock the idea that he'll ever judge sin. And Paul says what God meant for our good in Revelation, or particularly now he's dealing with a person who has never heard the gospel, that what God meant for their good in the revelation of nature and conscience It's being turned to destruction. Isn't it interesting, eh? I I was thinking about this, the way two things we don't see right now and find hard to believe. One is positive, one is negative. Jesus talks about people right now, here we are, and right now we can lay up treasure in heaven. Store up treasure in heaven. You can't see it. You, You write your check for... The church, you plop it into the plate, and all you see is it coming out of your account, right? I mean, you're no richer. And what are we going to do when you don't get a tax receipt? That's coming. But you just have to somehow believe, I don't see it. I can't prove it to you, except that Jesus talked about it. I'm laying up treasure in heaven, but it's invisible right now. And then Paul says, same thing. People ignore God, they reject God, they go their own ways, and they're storing up wrath. Storing up treasure, storing up wrath. Neither one is visible right now. Christians sometimes have a hard time believing they're really storing up treasure, and the godless have a very hard time when everything looks exactly the same, believing that they're actually storing up wrath, and the Bible says both are true. 
both are true. And neither one of them looks real right now. Neither one of them is visible right now. So this is the clear biblical answer to the frequently posed question. You ever had someone come up to you and say, where, where is God, you Christians? Where, look, at the, look at the tsunamis. Look at the wickedness. Look at the corporate ripoff. Look at the warfare. The world is filled with so much violence and corruptions. And you Christians, you get there and you're thinking about God's goodness and his love. What's he doing? Why doesn't he do something? What's happening? I'll tell you what's happening. He's storing up wrath right now. That's what's happening. Last point. These are confusing verses to people. I wanna, we'll talk about them more. I'm just going to touch on them now because I've got like four minutes. Are we saved by grace or by works? And it looks like works here. Uh, chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, who do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first, also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. God shows no partiality. And a lot of people think those Verses describe salvation by works and condemnation just by bad deeds. But you have to keep the context in mind. Paul, Paul isn't talking about how people are saved. He's talking about how they're judged. He's already labored and he will more in, in the last part of chapter 2. What he's trying to show is everybody, Jew and Gentile, stands guilty before God. There is no one who's not guilty. How many have sinned and fall short of the glory of God? He's going to tell us. Yeah, yeah. What he's trying to show here is there's a, there's a moral foundation under the universe. God knows how to see people who have the gospel, who have special revelation, people who do not. God is able to see the heart and the intents of the heart. There is a righteous foundation under the universe and God can be trusted. Everything will be done rightly. That's why he starts off this section. You have to remember the context. When you get difficult verses, put them, put them in the framework of where they're found. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God to salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek, to the Gentile. All right, let's pray.